Morning, everybody. Good, to, wonderful to see you all. Um, the kids are amazing. It's not that they're making any noise, but it's, it's, it's all right. We just uh, um, just settle a minute on the faithfulness of God, and I'd love us just to do that for a moment. Um, just conscious of sometimes you come in with uh, you, you go about a week with. Your moods can can vary, can't they? And uh, things you committed to can uh, can be up and down. Your follow through with some of the things you've committed to, and and um, that's why I just love that this, this morning as we contemplate the faithfulness of God. Like there's no there's no shame or, the, or condemnation for those of us that are in Jesus and. And it's all because of the, that he just remains incredibly faithful. And, um, and I just feel it's worth just meditating upon that for just a moment. And, uh, and, then, and then I'll pray. Father, I ask that for every one of us this morning that you would cause us to lift our heads. Father, you cause us to lift our eyes upon the, upon the goodness and the kindness and the faithfulness of God. God, we acknowledge that there's stuff for us to wrestle through, there's stuff for us to take on during the week, but this morning as we, as we come before you and as we intentionally set this time aside, we lift our eyes, we lift our heads. We see you again, we, we take hold again of who you are. We take hold again of what, of what the scriptures reveal about you and, and even more beautifully what Jesus reveals about you. And so, Father, as we lift our eyes, God, we see your faithfulness. We see one who remains faithful. And God, we don't get we don't get uh, we don't get despondent because of our weakness today. We don't get discouraged because our heads are our heads are lifted to the one who is faithful. We lift our eyes to the one who is who has promised that when he began a good work, he's going to make sure he completes it. And Father, I thank you for the good work that you began in this place. I thank you for everyone. God, every person sitting on every seat. God, you began a good work. No matter where we are in the, on our journey, You've began something within us. You've, you've created us as divine image bearers. And um, you've began something. And you'll complete it. God, as we lift our eyes, we choose to trust and, and lean into the faithfulness of God. 
Amen. Amen. Um, believe it or not, I'm not talking about the faithfulness of God this morning. <laughs> um, if you were on the call on Wednesday, Wednesday night, you'll probably have a rough idea of um, what we're going to start this morning, and uh, and I have a feeling that where we'll be over right up until, possibly right up until Easter, why not, uh, we're going to look in the book of Ephesians. Um, just before that, we're entering into the to the second week. We've called church to 21 days of prayer and fasting, and so um, maybe you haven't started yet, don't feel, don't feel bad, there's still time for you to engage in this. Um, there's, uh, there's no huge expectations. I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but, um, but for me, I just want to encourage you with, with the idea that it, just, it, is, it is enough, to t- it, whether, it's, whether it's a mid-morning coffee break or it's your late-night biscuit before you go to bed, there's something about that intentionality that I think it does something. I feel like it, it almost can't help but do something whenever you intentionally uh, turn your attention towards God. I'm convinced of it, and I feel like that's what's just encouraged me and sustained me this this week, has um, just been able to acknowledge I think being self-aware enough to realize over the last number of weeks and months, and I don't know if you're the same, but it's unfortunately feels really easy for prayer life and for growing in Christ-likeness to become almost stale. It can times feel incredibly dutiful. There's times even that it can feel like it's it's lost its um, passion, its zeal, or... And it feels at times that it's maybe just going through the motions. And, um, and sometimes that's, that's good. Sometimes it's healthy just to keep going. Even whenever, whenever the, the, the passion maybe feels like it's waning, it's, it is important to keep going. Keep being faithful. But I feel like being intentional is so much more important than we realize. And, um, and I feel like it's almost been a moment for me to say, right, I'm not, I'm not accepting anymore this feeling of going through the motions. I'm not, I'm not accepting anymore this feeling of, of being dutiful. And, um, and so, so inspired by, by a guy called Simon Gibo. And again, I mentioned this on, on Tuesday morning um, in our early morning prayer time over Zoom. And uh, Simon Gibo is probably one of the most one of the most poorest countries in the world. He's in Burundi, and not just poverty, but dealing with with war and so much, so much challenge, so much difficulty. But he talked. He talked one time about what he, he discovered. What Satanists were praying for. As you know, the top three things that they prayed for. They're praying for complacency of Christians. They're praying that they're they're praying that we would stop praying and fasting. And they're praying that there would be no unity within cities. Crazy. I don't want to hate giving any sort of like 
credit to darkness, but it's like I'm, I'm in my more in my more melodramatic moments or in my more moments of feeling down or whatever. It's like, oh my goodness, it feels like their prayers are being answered. How can this be? Um, and uh, so I just thought it was it was almost a, one of those things like, come on, you draw a line in the stand. And this is not to, this is not to make you feel like right. You need to go and fast now because Satan is trying to get us, but. It is to say there is a complacency that I think it'd be helpful for us to address. I think a lack of prayer and fasting is helpful for us to address. A lack of unity in the cities or the villages where our churches are is worthwhile us addressing. And so anyway, all of that to say any sort of intentional turning toward, I think, gets the attention of God and... um, and I think that's good. So Ephesians, um, you, could, you could keep your Bible open there. You could also keep it open. In fact, if you are following along, you want to keep it open in Acts 18, 19, and 20. I'm not, don't worry, I'm not going to read all those three chapters. But if you want to become a wee bit more familiar with the story of, uh, of what's happened or how Paul has ended up here or how the church has been planted here, you'll find so much more information about that in Acts chapter 18, 19, and 20. And so, uh, by way of introduction, we're just going to introduce this today. And I'm sorry if that's, uh, if that's not meaty enough, but it, I, I do enjoy this sort of thing. And I'm hoping you'll, you'll find it worthwhile um, as, we, as we lay a bit of a foundation for the next number of weeks. Um, and some some of these things will I think and I hope will be important for us to know as uh, as we get stuck into some of the more specific detail of what Paul is saying to the church. Ephesus is this huge city, um, this huge city. So much commerce, everything, so much flowed through this one of the major cities of the ancient world. Um, and not only that, but it was also the epicenter of, uh, of, of Greek and Roman worship. It was the epicenter of the Greek and Roman gods. And again, you'll read about that in, I think it's Acts 19. You'll hear them uh, worshipping the great goddess Artemis. It was the epicenter of, for the Greek and Roman gods. Again, just like detail like this, maybe seemingly insignificant, but it gives us an idea of the environment that a little church was planted, and uh, and what began to happen here is these these believers filled with the Holy Spirit began to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus, and so you'll find out in Acts chapter eighteen, uh, towards the end of that chapter, how this this church in Ephesus it was established. By, uh, by an eloquent speaker named Apollos. He, uh, again, I don't think it matters the year, around eighty fifty something like that. Church established by Apollos. Um, if you're anything like me, I, this, this Bible that I have has all of Paul's map, all, all the maps of all Paul's missionary journeys. And I used to always wonder, why on earth are they in our Bibles it seemed pretty pointless, had no real interest in geography. 
Um, but as I've got more interested in the life of Paul and the journey that he took, I do find it quite helpful to be able to pinpoint where he was and where he was going. Um, like a old-fashioned ancient satnav type thing as you follow his journey and how long it took him, the amount of miles he left to go. And so it was during Paul's second missionary journey that he stopped and met with this tiny congregation of people that had been established and planted by Apollos. And we know it's a small congregation because uh, Paul, uh, we're told in um, Acts 19 verse 7, how these, this, this little congregation of believers, even though uh, Apollos was a, a quality speaker, he was an excellent speaker, they had not, and they, were, they knew all about the baptism of repentance through John, they had not yet heard of the baptism of Jesus. And so Paul comes and he lays his hands and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And, um, and there was 12 of them in all, we're told. So here is this, this little congregation that, uh, that Paul stops with as he is on the, his second missionary journey. We were told, and you'll see it sort of overlaps, Acts 19 and 20, how Paul ends up staying longer, I think, than he intended. And uh, his time with this church, his time with these people, ended up extending to around three years, maybe more, just over three years. It was the longest place. It was the longest place that Paul spent any, uh, it was the longest place he stayed for in one place. Does that make sense? Yeah. It was the longest place. It was the longest time he stayed for in one place. Isn't that it? Come on. <laughs> Too much ibuprofen this morning. The longest time he'd spent in one place. Um, and I think you'll see again in Acts 20 that that was made evident whenever the tears, the deep, deep emotion, when, whenever the Ephesian elders came and bid farewell to him as, he, as, as Paul made his way to Rome. So you keep going. That, is that interesting, anybody? I, I, just lo I love all of that. Um, but anyway, Paul makes his way to Rome. He ends up in prison, and it's in prison where he writes this letter. And again, as I mentioned on Wednesday night, that this letter, if you go through all Paul's, all the letters, Galatians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, even Timothy, it all feels that those letters are written because Paul has heard about a specific problem. He's heard about a specific behavior that he needs to address. And again, I think this is, this is up for, certainly up for conversation, but it feels that this letter is the only one that is not provoked by some type of problem of behavior or belief. And there is many that say that this has a feel to it, that it is a general church letter that, although it was written to the saints in Ephesus, it was a circular letter, scholars call it, that was then circulated. This general letter that then was circulated among so many of the first century congregations. And again, I think this is important. And it, 
this is not to say, of course, there's obviously challenges. Like, these guys are not to be idolized. Like, there was difficulties, there was problems. There's no early church to be idolized. In fact, sometimes I listen to people say, like, well, I wish we could just get back to the early church. I wish we could just get back to the early church. And I, if you're familiar with what Paul's addressing in these letters, well, which one do you want to get back to? Have you seen what's going on in Corinth? Like, have you, have you seen what Paul's having to address in Thessalonians? Which, which early church do you want to get back to? Because they wouldn't be in a huge, like, they're, they're in a mess as, as well as anybody as well as anybody else. And so when it comes to this letter, it's not that there was in Ephesus that there was not huge challenge. It's not that there was huge difficulty, but it feels like this letter works in the other direction, if that makes sense of the, the other letters. So Paul hears of a problem, hears of a behavior, and addresses that, and then, and then fills in what he's wanting, what he expects, what it means to follow, follow Jesus. But it almost feels like this is going in the other direction. It is starting with the glory and the revelation and the mystery of Jesus, the wonder of the gospel. And in light of that, how your life is then changed. And I think we'll see as we, as we get stuck into this that, the, that, the letter, that this letter is clearly in two halves. First, first three chapters are the story of the gospel. The gospel story, and then we have this pivotal point in Ephesians 4, verse 1, where Paul says, therefore, and then it becomes, then it becomes about our story. And we read about marriage and relationships and all of that. And that's why I think that, that, the, that the verse in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16, is almost like a pivotal one for us as we, as we go on over the next number of weeks. Because I think we, what, we want to, what we want to see, what we want to know, is how do we grow up healthy in God and robust in love with him and one another. And I think that's, where the, that's, the, that's almost the two halves of this book, maturing and growing up healthy in God and maturing and, and, and being robust in our love and relationships with one another. So we're being given healthy conditions. This is, this is the... This is what it looks like. This is what the healthy conditions look like out of which uh, mature life can develop. The maturing as we follow Jesus. And I think over the next while that we are going to hopefully provoke conversations on becoming a mature Christian. I don't want to sound patronizing or confrontational, but it almost feels it's time to grow up. Um, and I imagine Caleb's turned 13 today. And so I imagine that over the next number of years, he'll probably get sick. Caleb, you're 13. Grow up. It's time to grow up. Now that got your attention. And again... Forgive me if you're on Wednesday night and some of this is becoming repetitive, but, but just by way of introduction, I think it's worth saying that uh, listening, listening in on conversations among, uh, with like articles and th what different people are writing about what's going on in the church and uh, so, so much more volume of material comes from the American church, but it was uh, in reference to the American church that one person observed that more attention is given to birth 
than to growth. And I hope I was understood because on Wednesday night I made the statement that birth is so much easier than growth. I, shouldn't, I was easier to say it in Zoom because nobody could throw anything at me. Uh, harder to say it today. I don't think that mask, I don't think that mask would do much damage. Um, but again, hope I'm heard here. Birth, birth, I know it's difficult. But as we think of, as we think of church and evangelism is essential, don't hear me say that it's not. Evangelism is essential, but I wonder is growth, is maturity in Christ, is deepening our roots as essential? And I just don't think it is. I really don't. And I think it's not, it's not given the same attention. It is not as essential in the church because it is so hard. It is so complex. It is endless. Endless in its challenge. Endless in its nuance. And so, and so whether, it's in, whether it's in growth of those who have children or grandchildren or whether it's in the life of the church, growth is complex because it's marked by fatigue. It's marked by anxiety and worry about where are they? What are they up to? Why have they not called? Why are they not home yet? Decisions about discipline, puzzling or scratching your head over adolescent behavior. So complex. The beginning, the getting somebody to say the prayer, that's the easy part. The maturing in Christ is the difficult part. It's the complex part. And I think it was Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson was one, I think, that gave his life to trying to see uh, brothers and sisters in Christ maturing in faith. And he talks about, I think it was him, he talked about a conversation that he had um, with a pastor who was part of uh, part of the charismatic church that just, um, I think he used the language, pole vaulted from church to church. He just loved the excitement. He just loved the, the, the new fad or the latest thing or the latest model of smoke machine or whatever it was. And, um, and whenever, whenever uh, Eugene Peterson tried to have this conversation with him around the, that the life of the church should be about witnessing and watching people grow deeper and maturing in faith and growing in love for God and for one another, the response was that he'd, from this guy was that he'd rather watch paint dry. He'd rather watch paint dry than that sort of endless, complex uh, growth. The birth thing was the easy bit. It was easy to go from city to city and, and set something up and with all the hype and all the emotion and then go on somewhere else. It's almost like that's the easy part. I'm not discrediting people that do that, but it's almost like that's the easy part to sit, uh, to sit long enough, to sit patient enough. And that's what Eugene Peterson said. He said, um, that's what Israel and the church have spent most of their time doing watching paint dry. He said that they've, they've, there's this persevering, 
patient, unhurried work that has occupied the center of the church's life for centuries. And then he asked the question, what happened? The persevering, patient, unhurried work has occupied the center of the church's life for centuries. And I'm not here to say that church should be like watching paint dry. Absolutely not. It should be, it should be like, we should enjoy this. Like, it should give us life. It should energize us. But there's something about uh, the complexity of growth that means we be persevere. We, we hunker down. We are unhurried. I love what um, C.S. Lewis was asked. C.S. Lewis was asked, uh, what style of church do you prefer? He was asked, are you high church or low church? So high church meaning are you more formal and traditional or are you less formal, more contemporary? And straight away he answered, I'm, I'm neither. I'm deep church. It's only about that response that I, like, I, I read that this week and I just thought that was... So I'm sure he, I'm sure he added a lot more to it, but just that the very idea that not high or low, I'm not really interested in the conversation of what style I prefer. I'm more interested in, I'm more interested in deep church. I'm more interested in deep roots. I'm more interested in maturing. I'm more interested, as Paul writes in this letter, to grow into the measure of the fullness of Christ. That's why I am looking forward to this letter. I'm looking forward to, to delving into this together. I'm looking forward to hearing different voices communicate what, what, they, what they're saying and what they're sensing, but I think there is an understanding. There, the letter gives us an understanding of the church from the inside. It's mystery. It's hidden foundation. And I think it's that that is going to provide, provide a grounding for us. It's going to provide a grounding and a and a form, patterns, no matter who we are or where we are. And I think that's the gift of this letter. Whether we're in first century Ephesus or 21st century Rich Hill, which also is the epicenter of the world. Uh, whether, we're, whether we're here or there, the, what I think it has given us the mystery it has given us the hidden foundations that will, that will form, that will provide a grounding for us, no matter who we are or where we are. And I know all of the letters offer us that. I know the Gospels offer us that. But I'm really biased towards this letter at the minute, so come with me. <laughs> um, and I think this, this letter is going to let us see, as I've already mentioned, this is that letter is going to let us see what growing in Christ consists of. I'm convinced it's going to, as we, if we participate, it will, re, it will let us see what being healthy in God and robust in love looks like, what it consists of. First three chapters, I think, will take us the gospel story, caught up in the mystery and the wonder of the story of Jesus, what it means, and Paul, and Paul says it, I think, 12 times in these first few chapters, what it is to be in Christ. We'll take hold once again of the gospel story. As we do that, 
We're going to see how then that impacts our patterns and our behaviors. Read this quote, without a clear vision of evasions, we are left looking at the church through a cracked windshield, marred by smudges and spattered bugs. Without a clear vision of this letter, we are left looking at the church through a cracked windshield, marred by smudges and spattered bugs. I so don't know. I don't know what time it is. Don't have enough. I don't know how long I've taken. But over the next wee while, if you're up for it, I think we're going to look at how we can begin to form habits using prayer. Like there's so much in this. Habits forming habits that using prayer and using scriptures and using our relationships with one another to help us grow and mature as followers of Jesus. And so in some ways, that's almost the goal that is set before us. Over the next number of weeks and months, if you're up for it, we're going to begin to form habits using prayer and scripture and relationships with one another to help us grow and mature as followers of Jesus. And so my prayer for, being really selfish, my prayer for myself and my prayer for all of us is that we would just not know the gospel, but we would experience its power power that uh, Paul reminds us that same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us there's something about the the power of recognizing and understanding the resurrection and what that means for us I think this this letter is going to build us up towards Easter there's something about uh, the resurrection the practice of resurrection um, that thrills me as we make our way towards Easter I know we're not there yet uh, but it's almost like giving you a, a flavor of, I suppose, my sense of anticipation um, for where I believe Holy Spirit wants to take us uh, with this. What time is it? Twelve. Twelve. Is that right? Is that this?